We're continuing on in Genesis. I wish I could tell you how long this series is going to be. I have no idea. But I'm doing my best. So Genesis chapter 13 and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Moses writes, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You ask most Christians, what is the book of Joel about? My guess is that a good many might struggle to answer that question. And that's not a a huge surprise because the book of Joel is quite enigmatic, but Many of us know verses or lines or passages from the prophecy of Joel, the command in chapter 2, rend your hearts and not your garments. Or the prophecy that the apostle Peter picked up on in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. But my guess is the most well-known and loved verse in the book of Joel is 
God's promise in chapter 2 verse 25, I will restore the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Because behind that verse is this truth, God restores his purposes. God can renew his purposes for his people. And that no amount of damage done to a believing soul, whether damage done merely circumstantially or as a result of sin, can overturn the final victory of God in the life of a true believer. God and his people are always victorious. The Apostle Paul said that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul wrote, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the the most formative experiences for me growing up was my mum reading Pilgrim's Progress to me as a little boy, night after night. And Pilgrim's Progress is that allegory that illustrates the whole of the Christian life. And so Christian, the main character, represents, you guessed it, a Christian. And Christian leaves the city of destruction to journey towards the celestial city, a picture of heaven. And it looks as though Pilgrim's Progress has had a a similar effect on Ada, our eldest daughter. But whenever I read Pilgrim's Progress to her again, the subsequent time, she always asks me to skip a few chapters because they're too sad And one of them is where Christian and Hopeful are locked up in the dungeon of despair underneath Doubting Castle. Giant despair enters the dungeon every day and he beats them mercilessly. But in the end, Christian remembers that he has a key tied around his neck and the name of the key is called Promise. And so Promise is the key that turns the lock of the dungeon of despair and liberates Christian and Hopeful back into freedom and into the light of day and they are free men and I have to say that I love Pilgrim's Progress all the more now that I'm a pastor because it is a book full of sermon illustrations for which I'm very grateful. God renews his purposes for his people. God renews his purposes toward failed people and towards backsliders and toward the hopeless, and toward the guilty, and toward the heartbroken, and toward the struggling. God renews his purposes for me, and God renews his purposes for you, and for us as well. And so if you've ever thought to yourself, I am a write-off, There is no way back for me. My heart is too wayward. I am too far gone. I am too lukewarm. Tonight is a sermon for you. And if you're here tonight or if you're listening to this online and you're not yet a Christian, but you would like to become a Christian and then yet you fear that you will let God down, tonight's passage is a passage for you tonight because it's going to show you how God responds to believers who do let him down. And who have let him down, but who then turn to him again. 
So do make sure your Bible is open in Genesis 13. We find ourselves tonight in a sore part of the narrative, a sensitive spot on account of Abram's failing that I'm going to remind us of in a little bit. But despite that failure, the point of our passage tonight is God renews his purposes. And we're going to see, number one, Abram calls again. Number two, Abram trusts again. And number three, God promises again. So number one, Abram calls again. Just look back at verse one. I know we've already read it, but let's just turn there again. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, if ever there were a walk of shame, this was it. Everything and everyone with Abram reminded him of his failure that we read of in the last passage. In that passage to protect himself from the Egyptians. You remember Abram had told Sarai, his wife, to lie to the Egyptians and tell them that you are my sister. It was a half-truth in order to cover the whole truth, which equals no truth at all. And the result was Sarai being taken to be Pharaoh's wife. And only because of divine intervention was Sarai restored to Abram again. How awkward would have that journey been? Journeying from Egypt back to Canaan. I think the phrase, you can cut the atmosphere with a knife, was invented for moments like this one. Wouldn't you agree, men? There are few things more discouraging, even paralyzing, than failing your wife. Like when she tells you that Valentine's Day is nothing more than a commercial opportunity. Don't get me anything. And so you don't get her anything. And then she's upset because you didn't get her anything. For example, obviously, only an example. (laughs) And that wasn't this year. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Uh, and Lot was there. Abram's nephew. Abram was called to be an example to Lot. And yet in the last passage, the only thing that Abram was, was an example of how not to do things. And we might say, well, at least Abram was loaded. At least he had that going for him. But you remember why he was loaded. He was loaded because Pharaoh had given him riches as a way of saying sorry for taking his wife and as a way of saying, get out of here, I never want to see you again, almost as a bribe. And so Abram arrives in Canaan in the opposite condition as he had at the first. Think about that with me. When he had first arrived in Canaan, he'd arrived having obeyed God's call. Abram, go to a land that I will show you. And so Abram went to a land that God had showed him. He arrived there at first in faith and obedience, but here he is arriving a second time on the back of a failure and on the back of an episode of mistrust. But Abram does the same thing that he had done at first. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He calls upon the name of the Lord with words of worship, 
with words of trust, no doubt with words of confession. Lord, I, I call upon your name because even though I was unfaithful to you, you were faithful to me. And I was weak in faith, but you were strong. I sinned, but you were righteous. I strayed, but you were steadfast. And there is no shadow of change with you, O God. And friends, how many of us have failed the Lord in some way, sinned in some area of our lives, and then we have told ourselves, you cannot now come before the Lord. Not until you earn his forgiveness. He won't hear you now. He won't delight in you now because God has no time for failures like you. But friends, if Abram called on the name of the Lord prior to the coming of Christ, then how much more should we call upon the name of the Lord post the coming of Christ, even upon failure and sin? Because friends, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't only take the sins that we committed prior to our conversions. 1 John 1 says the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin, all of it. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All sin, all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. I was really helped by that little book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, as I know many of you were as well. And in that, he quotes Richard Sibbs, didn't he? And Sibbs said this, he said, what a comfort it is now in our daily approach to God to minister boldness to us in all our suits, victories and failings, that we go to God in the name of one that he loves, in whom his soul delights, that we have a friend in court, a friend in court, in heaven for us that is at the right hand of God and interposes himself there for us in all our suits that makes us acceptable, that perfumes our prayers and makes them acceptable. Be sure therefore in all our suits to God to take along our elder brother. God looks upon us lovely in him and delights in us as we are members of him. We can call upon the name of the Lord even after failure because we call in Jesus' name. We don't end our prayers in Jesus' name for the sake of mere tradition. It is a confession that all of our hope and all of our confidence in the prayer just prayed is because of who Christ is and because of who Christ is for us the one who makes our prayers perfect before him and according to his blood and righteousness that's cleansed us from all sin. And so Abram calls again, and friends, so must we. But second, I want us to see Abram trusts again. Look with me at verse five. It says, and Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. 
And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Now, a mere skimming of those verses would lead us to believe that all there is here is negativity. So Abram and Lot, they couldn't dwell together. There was strife between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And so they separate and separation is rarely ever a pleasant affair. It usually comes with cuts and bruises and whatever else. But behind Abram's actions and speech here was faith and was trust. Abram, the father of faith, is here trusting again. Where, where, where are we seeing that? Well, Abram could offer Lot any part of the land because he believed that in the end, in God's way and in God's timing, God's promise to him would be fulfilled. So that whether Lot's over here or whether I'm over there or whether Lot's over there and I'm over here, God's word towards me will not fail. He could have said, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. I'm going to leave in search of somewhere more fertile. He could have said, Lot is in the way. And after, after all, God has promised this land to me. And he could have sought to cheat Lot out of the land like Laban. But instead, he resisted all temptation to self-assertion and offered Lot any part of the land that God had promised to who? To him. Because he believed God would be faithful to his word. He could be open-handed toward Lot because God had disclosed his purposes to him. And so on the face of it, this was counterintuitive. But it, it was only as counterintuitive as offering Isaac up on the altar who would be returned to him. It was only as counterintuitive as putting a baby in a basket on the river Nile in order to protect him from death. And yet God ensured that that selfsame baby arrived right into Pharaoh's headquarters and brought an empire of death crashing down to its knees. Friends, here's the takeaway for us. We are to view our location in view of God's revelation. We are to view God's, uh, our location in view of God's revelation. Again, the reason Abram could give Lot the first pick of the land is because he believed that in the end, God's word would be fulfilled. And we know, don't we, that ultimately the promise of the land will be perfectly fulfilled when Abram's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns from heaven to earth and ushers in Revelation chapter 22 that we read at the beginning of our service. And as Abram's descendants, ethnic believing Jews and ethnic believing Gentiles, the land will be ours too because we're united to Abram's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. So even when things on earth aren't the way they should be, and even when they're far from the heaven that is promised. And even when we're, we're more aware of the fact that this is a world devil-filled, as Martin Luther wrote, we needn't be despair because we know how things 
will end. I'm half serious when I say that pastors have an extra DNA strand that wants to keep everyone together. So when young people finish their A-levels and they go off to university, or when people relocate, it's hard, it's extra hard (laughs) for pastors because you want to see people together. But friends, if some of us go to the left and we are left on the right, or if we go to the right and some of us go to the left, at the end of the day, all of the land belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, it doesn't matter in the end. And maybe your neighbors are are difficult. And it's as though the Canaanites and the Perizzites are still in the land. And they make life really hard for you. And if you had the money, you'd relocate. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we view our location in view of God's revelation, his revelation tells us that one day, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I was doing a pastoral visitation this week and as I walked closer to the beach and noticed more and more sand on the pavements of Hoylake, I thought to myself, yes, I've got myself an illustration right there. Because God's promises are like the sand on the pavement in that they are signs of what is up ahead. We are not at the beach yet. In case you haven't noticed, we are not in heaven yet. And yet we have glimpses of what will be in the promises of God in his word. And so we have to view our locations in view of God's revelation. We have to view the present in view of the future. Where the world that we're now living in, where streets are filled with sin, will one day be paved with gold and will reflect the glory of God himself. Lastly, I want us to see God's promise, God promises again. Look with me at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So after Lot had lifted up his eyes and had chosen for himself the Jordan Valley, God now tells Abram, lift up your eyes. And upon lifting up his eyes, God opens his ear to receive the promise that he had given him at first. Now, I love the ESV. Uh, I've done my quiet times in the ESV. I've preached from the ESV as long as I can remember. But there's a word in verse 14 in the Hebrew text that we don't have in the ESV. We don't have it in, in the NIV. We don't have it in the New King James or the Old King James. Verse 14 in the Hebrew includes the word, please. Look about, 
please. And from where you are, look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Why is that significant? It's significant because the four times that God uses that Hebrew word, English translation, please, God is asking a human being to do something that that goes beyond human sense. That makes no sense uh, according to a human, earthly, fleshly understanding. So in other words, God is promising Abram here what Abram could never see with the eyes of flesh or accomplish in and of himself. And when did God speak this amazing word of promise to Abram? Well, friends, remember, he promised it to him after failure. But the way that God words the promise is a heightening, it is a broadening, it is a re-emphasizing and underlining of the promise that God had made to Abram in chapter 12. Like We would all expect God to minimize his promise to Abram after sin, to, to diminish it in some way, to shrink it down in some way. But instead, God re-emphasizes and he fleshes out mercifully the promise that he'd made at first, even after sin and failure. Now, friends, we, we are fortunate enough to live at a point in history where this promise has been fulfilled in one sense. Because who are Abram's offspring? Well, all who have Abram's faith. And, are his, and, and who are in his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ethnic believing Jews, ethnic believing Gentiles, joined to Jesus, the offspring of Abram, by faith, growing out of the same vine, Jews and Gentiles. It's why Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you, Gentiles, are Abram's offspring, as according to promise. And Philippians 3.3, For we, Gentile Philippians, are the circumcision. And so we are proof, ethnic believing Jews, ethnic believing Gentiles, that God renews his purposes even to failed saints. And so friends, what I want to do is close with two therefores. Therefore, number one, none of us should exclude ourselves from believing the promises of God due to past failures. God has said, I am with you. God has said, I will strengthen you. God has said, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So that even though God's spirit is grieved by our sin and God is offended, if we will return to him, and seek him with all of our hearts, if we will turn our back on Egypt and journey again to Canaan, then God will restore us and he will reaffirm and reestablish and reemphasize his promises towards us. Why? Because they are all bought with the blood of Christ. They're all yes and amen to us in him. And the fullness of God's blessing belongs to us because the fullness of God's curse was on Christ. And so none of us should exclude ourselves from believing the promises of God due to past sin. And friends, as well as that, therefore, none of us should exclude ourselves from being used by God on account of past failure. One pastor wrote, quote, 
one of the major forces preventing young people from obeying the call of God into vocational Christian service is defeat in the area of lust. A teenager hears a challenging call to throw himself into the cause of world evangelization. He feels the promptings of the Holy Spirit. He tastes the thrill of following the King of Kings into battle, but he does not obey because he feels guilty. And he can hardly imagine witnessing to a pretty girl about the eternal plight of her soul because he has so habitually looked at girls like her with lust in his imagination. And so he feels unworthy and unable to obey the call of God. And then he applied these words from the book of Micah, rejoice not over me, O my enemy, for when I fall, yet shall I rise. The Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. And then the book of Micah ends with these words, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to who? To Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God renews his purposes. And aren't we so grateful that he does? Amen. Amen.